At an anxious moment for the city, the Lord gives the king a sign that he is master of the situation. Isaiah makes four predictions of a certain woman that she is pregnant, of the child that he will be a boy, that his name will be Emmanuel, and crucial to the king, that before the boy is old enough to know, pleased from thank you, the enemies who have made the city anxious will have withdrawn. And it was so. In Matthew, we read of the woman that her name was Mary, and of the boy that he is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. 700 years before the fact, Isaiah had predicted Christmas. I love Matthew's interpretation, and I believe it, too. In novels, short and long-term meanings are not mutually exclusive. Foreshadowing, we call it. As that technique is in an author's repertoire, so it is in God's. So we have short and long-term interpretations of the passage. The second magnifies the first. Christmas speaks to a whole world's anxiety. God has given us a sign. Last summer, I saw Captain Fantastic, a movie about a father who took his family back to nature. By day, he teaches his children to live by their skill and wits from the forest and the streams. By night, under lamplight, they read Einstein, Marx, and Dostoevsky. I went into the movie thinking of Thoreau and Swiss Family Robinson. I went out thinking of Richard Dawkins because the movie wore contempt for religion on its sleeve, our religion especially. The Christians in Captain Fantastic have all the charm of Harry Potter's aunt and uncle. So, in lieu of Christmas, Dad and the kids observe Noam Chomsky Day. One of his sons protests, why can't we just have Christmas like everybody else? The father retorts, who is more worthy of commemoration, a great humanitarian or a magic elf? I choked on my popcorn flabbergasted by that sidestep of the birth of Jesus, who was, if nothing else, a Hall of Fame humanitarian. Then I felt wronged, as a teacher might feel when she sees that a student is cheated on a test. It is lazy disdain for Christian faith that will not face it squarely. Instead of saints, show us ugly muggles. Instead of Jesus, make your foil a magic elf. Later, I reminded myself that we sometimes see the same from faith's side, Christians attacking unbelief through caricatures instead of tackling hard questions and facing honest doubts square on. Anxious faith, let's call that. The great teachers of Christian faith have not been anxious intellectually. I think of Thomas Aquinas. When he makes a claim, he starts by naming the objections to it. Does God exist? It would seem that God does not exist, because for all that happens in the world, we can find a natural explanation. God is superfluous, apparently. Also, belief in God seems logically at odds with all the tragedy and trouble in the world. Aquinas sidesteps nothing, nor does he score points by mocking his opponents. 
their questions are stepping stones towards deeper understanding. I think of Marilyn Robinson, the novelist who reads Calvin and Karl Barth for pleasure. Non-anxiously, questions and doubts are woven through her stories. At the time that I saw Captain Fantastic, I was also reading Robinson's novel, Lila. Lila had been an abused child in a loveless home until rescued by a cleaning woman named Doll. Literally, Doll was Lila's savior. Doll had secrets. She had not been baptized, did not believe, and had nothing but contempt for Christians. Grown up, Lila married Ames, a faithful pastor, more or less by accident, and now she was surrounded by Christians. One night at dinner, there was some banter about heaven, judgment, hell, who was saved and who was not. Doll, it seemed from the conversation, was not. Not Doll or anybody Lila knew before her accidental marriage. Emotionally, she knew this. If Doll was going to be lost forever, Lila wanted to be right there with her, holding to the skirt of her dress. Intellectually, she knew this. I've been tramping around with heathens. They're just as good as anybody, so far as I can see. They sure don't deserve no hellfire. She imagined the terrible moment before the judgment seat of God. Souls just out of their graves having to answer for lives most of them never understood in the first place. Such hard lives. And their doll would be whatever guilt or shame she had hidden from all her life laid out for, no bit of it forgotten or forgiven. Instantly, Lila made up her mind that she wanted no part of Christian faith. By then, she had been baptized, saved as these Christians saw it. That night, she went alone back into the creek to unbaptize herself and wash off salvation. That is what I mean by faith's tackling hard questions and facing honest doubts square on. From about the age of two, I've known that there was a lot more to Christmas than the story of a magic elf. It is also more than the story of the birth of a great humanitarian. According to Calvin and Bart, Christ came into the world as prophet, priest, and king. As prophet to show the truth of God, as priest to reconcile the world and God, as heavenly king to rule through earthly service. In Robinson's novel, Home, a daughter remembers what her father taught her about worship. Her father had always said, God does not need our worship. We worship to enlarge our sense of the holy so that we can know and feel the presence of the Lord. He said, love is what it amounts to, a loftier love and pleasure in a loving presence. Christmas magnifies the Lord. Heaven and earth are mutually enriched through an intimate association. We find that heaven has a lower bottom and earth a higher top than we had previously imagined. The birth of Christ humanizes God and it elevates humanity. There are many things I love about these last few days leading up to Christmas. 
I love the lights, red, blue, green, blinking light, white, glowing in the early darkness of the winter solstice. As a child to me, they seem to promise Christmas magic, and I love that memory. As an inland southerner, I love the oysters, stewed or baked with cheese and breadcrumbs. I don't know how they get here now, but it used to be they'd haul them up on a barge up the Mississippi River and drop them off in Helena and Greenville, special for the holiday. I love the snow, the faint hope of it, because white Christmases in Little Rock are as rare and luminous as miracles. The moon on the breast of the new fallen snow gave the luster of midday to objects below. I love reading that to children, even old ones. A wink of his eye and a twist of his head soon gave me to know I had nothing to dread. We have nothing to dread. That's the meaning of the season. I love the quiet of this church on Christmas Eve before all you worshipers pour in. I sit alone and soak it in. The scent of evergreens, candle wax, the beauty of holiness, we call that. My heart fills up with hopeful memories of people I've loved at Christmas through the years, now gone to heaven. Lila, the novel, ends in church on a snowy winter day as Lila that doubtful woman's infant son is baptized by her faithful father, by his faithful father. It's a boy. Three times the old pastor dips a handful of water and he lets it fall on his son's head. A sign of God's mastery of death and care for that child through every situation. Slyly, the, the old pastor flicks the holy water on his wife who's standing there as though to redo her baptism. That baptism that she had attempted to return to sender. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. And she's know, she knows what he's doing and why he's doing it. Remembering it later, she thinks she told him in the moment, it's all right with me, I guess. Or maybe she hadn't. It happened quickly. According to Aquinas, doubt is when our mind is evenly divided between two answers to a question. Lila muses that if she told her husband he could sprinkle her, she wasn't sure she'd meant it. And if she hadn't told him, she was sorry she had not. A feeling from somewhere had slipped into her ruminations and registered its own opinion. And she begins to think. She remembers Dahl and her rough company of unbaptized friends from childhood. And then step by step, this unlettered woman works her way through a process of intelligent deduction. Lila knows for a fact that heaven for her husband would not be heaven for her husband if she wasn't there by his side. In that eternity of his where everybody will be happy, how could he feel the lack of her, the loss of her? So, if he is bound for glory, she is too. Aroused, her mind pushes that surmise a little further. If she is included, 
by the same line of reason, so is Dahl. And if Dahl, then countless others. It must always be true that there are stragglers, people somebody couldn't bear to be without no matter what they'd been up to in this life. Now Lila puts that fact of, get, that fact of life together with a simple moral observation. If any scoundrel could be pulled into heaven just to make his mother happy, it couldn't be fair to punish scoundrels who happen to be orphans or whose mothers didn't even like them and who probably have better excuse for the harm they did than the ones who had somebody caring about them. It couldn't be fair to punish people for trying to get by, people who were good by their own lights when it took all the courage they had to be good. Now the gates are open. Two and two makes four, plus two is six. Rung by rung, reason leads Lila up from doubt, climbing Jacob's ladder. And a mysterious feeling and moral intuition, intuition reaches down from above to lend a hand. And for the first time in her life, Lila's memories are hopeful. And she decided that she should believe and realized that she did.